Esther ends, I think that, it's, like I said, the parallels are cool because you see that God fixes it. It's not just that God simply allows the villains to lose, but he ultimately uh, makes everything whole again. He completes the picture. Um, as we were talking about Parashat Zab, part of the picture that got damaged in the garden was we were unable to meet with God. So in the tabernacle, we create this interface where we can meet with God again. And of course, as we talked about before, end of Exodus, uh, God comes down, full presence of God. Moses can't even enter the tabernacle. And the book of Exodus kicks off, and it's predominantly about how you interact with God in the tabernacle, in the tabernacle system. So the Vayikra was all about the, the most of the offerings. Parsat Zav begins with some of the offerings. Um, I think the thing about it is sometimes you look at these books, especially in the beginning of Leviticus, and it's very easy to feel like this has no application to you at all. If you, when you first started keeping Torah, hopefully you didn't think that you needed to do any of these things at that point, but your friends probably thought you did, and they were all wondering why you hadn't started slaughtering goats in the backyard, or they were asking if you had. Um, I hope you all invited them over to come do the next one and just see their expression. But um, the point is that we're not supposed to be doing this stuff, and that makes it feel sometimes like this has no relevance to our lives. Um, and it can be difficult sometimes to read it because it's, it's, it's difficult to figure out the application. Um, but there's two things I want you to remember. Number one, uh, we know from Paul's words to Timothy that all, uh, all of this has application. It's all for our good. It's all to teach us and to grow us. And we're going to dig into some really cool stuff from this parasha. But number two, I think we should also recognize what the, what the sacrifices were. The sacrifices were not the foundation of the relationship between God and Israel. Sacrifices, as we learned this week in our in our haftar portion, the sacrifices were the were the the bonus at the end. I think people get confused. They see the sacrificial system as though somehow that was the Torah, but the sacrifices were the icing on top of the cake. They were the privilege you got to do if you kept the rest of the book. Because if you look at Jeremiah, one of the things he pointed out today is he didn't start with sacrifices. I think most of the people in the church don't realize that. They're thinking that, boom, they brought them out of Egypt, and the very first thing that they God told them is, here's these offerings you need to give me. By the way, they don't actually do anything, but you should start doing them now. You know, something like that. But actually, God waits. He waits a really long time. We've gone through an entire year with no mention of offerings throughout that entire stretch. And the important thing about that, I think, is that the lesson we learn is that this is a... This is an extra piece of the relationship. When your relationship with God is so good, you are worthy of offering sacrifices. That is a privilege. It's not, even though this chapter is called, or this parasha is called Zav, command, it is not, these are not heavy, burdensome commandments. These are the privileges. These are the opportunities to do the extra stuff. It's like when you were a kid, and you were a really small kid, and you got to sit in on the adult conversation for the first time. Now, maybe later on she won't appreciate it as much, but right now what she realizes is this is a privilege. This is exciting because she gets the honor of doing something she wasn't allowed to do before. And even though it's a, it's a commandment, it's a good thing. And that's what the offerings were about. They were an intimacy with God that is unparalleled. And the only way to merit to do those was to keep the rest of the book that we've been studying up until now. So don't see these as the burden, as the exhausting, like, meticulous, oh my goodness, these were the, the special part. This was the dessert to the dinner, so to speak. Yes, sir. Well, I, you're, you're exactly right. And I think it's important to recognize that, as we'll see later on in the Torah, 
the, the Mishkan and later the temple was protected by the Levites. They weren't just singers, they were armed. Mm-hmm. And they were making sure that people that were not selected by God to be his people, chosen by him, whether Jew or Gentile, were not allowed to come and draw near to him. You just didn't have that privilege. You had not been selected. You were not one of the chosen. And it certainly puts a different spin Mm -hmm. on the whole deal. Uh, I do like to remind people that these sacrifices were to allow us to draw near. Right? And we've been given, as you said, the privilege to be able to give them and to draw near. Um, Up till this point for that year, there was no need for sacrifice because God wasn't there dwelling in their midst. And once he did, as we saw at the back end of Exodus there, Moses had done exactly what God said. The tabernacle was erected perfectly, and son of a gun, just like he said, he dwelt among his people. That's why they couldn't use the bathroom too close to the area and so forth, because he was there. He was there. And the only way that we could draw even closer was through these sacrifices. So it's a it's a very privileged group, and to to take the sacrifice of the master and put it in line or at the same level as the sacrifice of the animals, allowing us to draw near, is really a sin. Right, but at the same time, I think the other mistake that we can make is because the sacrifice of the master is so much greater that we nullify all of these as though they were of no importance. Right, and if we try and make them to be the same... Right. In any way, shape, or form, yeah. we've we've messed up already. Right, and I think it basically is. I think the thing they is, they are instructive. They are instructive. No question. But they're not. But Yeshua was not a korban. That's right. He couldn't be right. because the Torah says that a man can't be sacrificed. Right, and I think the thing is, though, as we look at this, is it, Hebrews, ironically enough, is oftentimes used to denigrate the Book of Leviticus, but actually, it's the perfect book for elevating Leviticus right. because what Hebrews is basically saying is. What Messiah did is phenomenally awesome. So much greater than what was done in Leviticus. But the two are almost apples and oranges. They're, they're parallel in the sense that they're both fruit, but they're not really the same thing. And if you get confused and think that Messiah replaced Leviticus, and therefore we don't need that anymore, or if on the other hand you think that they're the same thing, and somehow Leviticus was some sort of promissory note that Messiah then filled as though somehow the sacrifices were basically the same, but it was just a little bit better. You're, you're confused on both sides. Joshua, that would be great if the if the church as we know it today even thought that it would be so much better than what they think today. Because today, I if I'm not unless I'm mistaken, or they've changed dramatically since I pulled myself out of there, their their main focus is that this was a burden given to the people of Israel. Right. A burden that they had to do because they were bad. Right. Or that's, that's how they were saved then. Right. That's right. also the other angle. So I mean, it was this way. Messiah came and died, resurrected. That's how we get to be, have the ultimate relationship with Hashem. We're going to spend eternity with him on behalf of that offering. This is nothing like that. And more importantly, when Messiah returns, he is going to reinstitute these sacrifices Amen. again. Um, it's not just Maimonides who says that, although he does. It is also the book of Ezekiel. It is also the book of Zechariah. You go, the only time in the apostolic scriptures that we see that sacrifices stop is in the world to come, which is another different animal from when Messiah comes back. Right. So for a very long period of time, I give, give or take about a thousand years, Messiah is going to be here and we're going to be doing these things again. So study now, 
get, get prepared, and get excited. Because as I started with the point of this at the beginning, as your, to your point, these were not a burden. Right. This was not a heavy thing. Most of these were voluntary. You didn't even have to give them. Why would you do that? Unless it was awesome. You're not giving the offering because God said, you looked again at that woman. I know that I know it was in your heart. Go get a go get a goat. Bring it here. That's not. This is not how that worked. These were the con, the sin offerings and the guilt offerings were almost more like gateways to offer the rest of the offerings. It's like you want to come close to God, you better bring a sin offering. Cover X. If there's a specific sin, and there's a handful that are pretty serious, they require a special offering. But most of them didn't. The point is that these were actually a privilege. These were good things. And I think the mistake that we keep making is we keep trying to take ourselves and our modern sensibilities and our modern way of doing life. And I agree. We want to think that our lives today are good. We don't want to feel like we're missing something. But the reality is we're missing something. That's right. And this is going to be better when it comes back. I've got Greg and then Greg. Well, and just real quick, like basically, because of how good they were at that particular time, they teach us something very important that can apply today, which is the concept of holiness. Mm. Back mm-hmm. then, these set everyone apart, right. and they cleansed them in various ways, but today, we still have a responsibility to be set apart, to be right. holy, to allow God into every area of our lives. Right. And that's another thing that we can really take away from these. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and I think that Judaism has done that quite a bit. Um, sometimes, I, I don't always agree with how far they take it, but the concepts they are applying are beautiful. Like, for example... They look at this and they notice that we eat a lot of these. So what do they do? They apply a lot of the concept to our dinner table. So our dinner table becomes holy. Why? Because eating is a holy act. When we thank God for the food, we bless God for the food. When we thank God for after we finished eating, that was a holy act. When we eat only the things he told us to eat, we only only eat as much as he tells us to eat. We eat special things on Shabbat to make that day more holy, or holidays, or whatever. We're constantly elevating... We salt the challah because... We throw salt on the sacrifice. Right. So it's like all these little traditions, these little pieces, some of them are commandments, some of them are just cool to do. But the point that we're trying to do is, to your point, Greg, we're trying to emphasize that holiness. And what was the holiness really doing? It's What's amazing is, on the one hand, it separates the normal life from the tabernacle. But it also elevated so much of normal life to become holy. Now, all of a sudden, as you're pointing out, because the tabernacle is in the middle of the people of Israel, going to the bathroom becomes holy. You know, there's other types of things that become they become separate. You have to be careful about. You know, the food they ate, they kept eating in the tabernacle. I mean, I feel like in, in modern Christianity, like eating is, is like so debased, it's so human. You know, it's like I mean, the super holy. They fast all the time. I mean, it's like there's why would we even be eating? If you could just plug in an IV, spend the rest of your time on your knees. That's the way you should be doing it. And it's like no, no. now fasting is not a bad thing, but eating is good. It's holy. It can be holy. Yes, sir. Uh, I think the other thing that's important is the the way the the, the way the um, protocols are laid out here again are can can be instructive for us in terms of how we approach a holy God. So, for example, you know, last week's portion was introducing these different types of of offerings for the worshiper. This week, it's more focused on the specific procedures and ceremonies that the that the Kohenim had to go through. And what's interesting is, is this portion, once it describes all the details around how the, how they were supposed to uh, offer these uh, these animals and whatnot, 
it then says, it, it then talks about Aaron and what Aaron had to do. The first thing Aaron had to do was he had to bring a sin offering for himself. Mm-hmm. Then he had to bring uh, an elevation offering, a, a, an, an Ola. Mm-hmm. And then he brought a peace offering. And the order is, is significant because what it's saying is to approach God, the first thing you've got to do is remove any obstacle mm-hmm. that might be in, that might inhibit that relationship. Right? Do Which means if you have sin, doubt, um, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, right? You've got to you got to deal with that, and that's pictured in Aaron having to first offer the sin offering. Mm-hmm. Then, once you've dealt with that, and there's no obstacle between you and God in terms of that relationship. Then Aaron is instructed to offer an elevation offering, which an elevation offering, as we learned last week, is one that has no benefit to anyone. You don't get to eat any of it. Mm-hmm. You don't get to do anything. It, it, the whole thing goes on the altar, and it gets entirely consumed, which is a picture of the worshiper, the, the offerer. Uh, it's a picture of them giving over their entire self mm-hmm. to Hashem, right? right? So you have to remove the obstacle of, 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 of relationship, any obstacle that would inhibit relationship. You give of your entire self to God, and then he brings the peace offering. And the peace offering is the one that's particularly festive in the sense that, you know, you get to eat of it. Uh, you know, it's intended to be, you know, um, it's intended to be very uh, joy, joyous, etc. So that, that order is... Is significant. It's, yeah. not, it's not an accident. That's the that was the order he had to do things, and it's instructive for us in terms of how we approach Hashem. Right, and that's exactly what I think. I hope that you get from this not only that you hopefully look forward to these when they come back, but also that you that you try to gather this stuff out of. Here's one example. I thought this was really cool. Reading some of the commentaries this week, verse five says, "The fire on the altar shall remain burning on it." And I had read that before, and you think about, okay, so then you don't want to put the fire out. And you know, overnight, you've got to stoke it and add wood and whatever else that makes sense. But this, the, the sages of Judaism, are very, <laughs> they really think about everything when it comes to this. And one of the first things that they thought about is God gives this commandment in the wilderness, but the, the tabernacle's not stationary. So that meant they had to keep this burning when they were moving. I don't know about you, but usually whenever I try to... Um, you know, cook food and then bring it somewhere. I turn off the fire before I transport it to the next person's house. So that's just <laughs> normally the way that I do it. So the idea of keeping it burning sounds really difficult, especially back prior to the days of warming trays and those types of things. I mean, this is like they had to keep a fire going while they tramp through the desert. Um, and so they uh, one one tradition is they put a copper pot on top of the altar, supposedly to try to help keep the flames from burning through the fabric that went on top of that. Remember that as part of this, 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 set, this, this setup. Of course, the whole thing's miraculous anyway. But what I love is that um, the, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, he catches on this concept, and he has a really good point. He says, the Torah instructs that the fire upon the altar must be kept burning even on Shabbat and even under conditions of ritual impurity. There are times when we believe ourselves to be, quote, above it all, as the spirituality of the moment transports beyond the so-called trivialities of physical life. Conversely, there are times when we feel overwhelmed by those very trivialities, says the Torah, the fire on your internal altar must and can be kept burning at all times. No moment in your life is too exalted or too debased 
to sustain your passion and enthusiasm in the fulfillment of the purpose to which you were created, which is to raise up to God the materials of your everyday existence. In other words, what's the lesson we learn from this? They kept it burning all the time. And the same idea is true for us. I mean, you, I mean, you, know, you guys, guys, we know this. We go get up in the morning, you pray, and then you go to work. And I don't know about you, my work requires me to spend some of my mental energies on it, so I'm definitely not thinking about the Torah all day while I'm working. So it feels very worldly, you know, lower level. But that's not, um, that's not what we learn here. We learn from this passage is that the fire is supposed to be burning all the time. You're supposed to be serving God in the work that you do, the things that you, I mean, I'm talking about the things that you eat, serving God in the relationships you have, even if you're just, you know, being friendly with your secular friend talking about who won the basketball game last night. The point is that the fire on the altar should always be burning. It should be carried with you everywhere. Now, sometimes you have to get creative. Get the copper pot on there so you don't burn the, gar the garment. The point is that um, that's kind of the lesson you're learning from this point. Yes, Micah. Rambam says that the western lamp of the menorah becomes extinguished, then it may only be reignited from the outer altar. Ah, that's cool. So we're taking fire from the altar to light the menorah. The uh, interesting thing about the altar, and also the, the sages also point this out, the altar was lit, as we're going to find out next portion, by God himself. That's right. Which is totally awesome. I mean, I want to see that. Anyway. Maybe not. Well, no, From the inside. <laughs> From a distance. From a distance. Obviously, the people were in awe. They hit the, they hit the deck. But, yeah, that's cool. So, they, um, but, interestingly enough, God then commands them to keep it going, which is a very interesting point. This actually is a beautiful picture of basically everything in our lives from a spiritual perspective, because what does, uh, even Paul, Paul gets this. He says, we are his workmanship, created unto Messiah Yeshua for good works, that what? That what he has prepared beforehand, we would walk out, right? So the idea being that God intends us to do good deeds, but whose action is required here? It's ours. doesn't mean that we can claim credit for it, per se, but does mean that we have to do something. That's exactly what you got here. God lights the fire on the altar, but he expects them to keep investing in it, to keep it going. Um, it reminds me of this uh, cool parable that obviously Yeshua was alluding to, or they were alluding to him, um, in Judaism, that they say that like if you open up a eye of a needle, Hashem says he will drive a cart through it. The point being that um, if you can do whatever you can do, God will fix the rest. You just do what you can. I've got you and then my dad's at that Just point. real quick, I think we, we discussed it a couple of years ago that the Motsi blessing. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. He doesn't bring forth bread from the earth. There are no loaf trees, right, or bread trees. He, he makes the grain grow. We participate with him in order to make bread. And it's the same thing. He lit the fire, expects us to keep it lit. Mm -hmm. He gives us the grain, he expects us to make bread. Right, we have a role to play. And isn't, it our, and isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's actually one thing that um, Julianne and I were reading uh, last Shabbat from um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, um, uh, and the lovely book on Leviticus that my dad gave her. So, you know, thanks, Dad. So we were enjoying this portion, and one of the things he's saying in one of his essays is he's talking about how one of the things that children most love doing is doing something on behalf of their parent. Mm. That it's, it's something that the parent naturally, I think, is somewhat resistant to at first because they are the provider, and this is good. It's what they're supposed to be doing. 
But there comes a stage in the relationship when the child now wants to return the favor to some degree. And at some level, the child can't really always do that. And at some point, it may take way long before the child's able to do that in a way that's actually felt by the parent in the same degree that the sacrifice is given. But this goes back to that point. What's God saying? God's saying, I want you to partner with me. Here's the work that needs to be done. I'm going to get it started, and I want you to participate. That's an awesome privilege. Yes, Dad? Well, uh, a couple things. First, I didn't raise her, but my daughter-in-law actually gave me collar last night. That's true. (laughs) So, and she's certainly not a child. Did a great job. Anyway, so bringing holiness into my home. Thank you for doing that. Um, the whole time we were reading today, I just couldn't keep from not thinking about the time, and it's recorded in three of the Gospels, where Yeshua entered the temple and drove out and sold, and, and this is from Matthew 21. And those all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the many changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, my house shall be a called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But the chief priests and the scribes saw how wonderful the things uh, saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. The interesting thing is that this entire inaugural process of the Mishkan, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness, involved inaugurating the priesthood first, which is what we read about today. And then finishing the inauguration or the explanation of some of those some of those offerings that have been previously uh, described in the first five chapters, and then giving their kind of more more personal or practical application. And, and as as uh, uh, Greg mentioned, you know that they that they had uh, they had uh, real benefit for us personally. Um, and if you didn't sin, uh, of course you didn't have an offering. But even if you did sin, you didn't. Had to come bring an offering either. This was all uh, mostly, almost completely voluntary. Um, but to me, the thing here is that, that that even though there isn't a one-for-one relationship between the offerings and Yeshua and his offerings, but his preparation for the temple to make it right. This is immediately preceding hmm. his offering of himself. This hmm. is making the temple uh, clean as a as a place where it could be. Reminds me of the inauguration of the temple, where you know the very process was necessary to make it usable for people to interact with God. The thing that's interesting is that he sends out all the those that have been using it improperly and he immediately then heals those who shouldn't be there. Hmm. It's almost like it's it's almost to me a complete explanation for the interaction in the Mishkan and in the Beit HaMikdash itself, the temple later, is that uh, we should never be able to be there. Mm-hmm. And God makes a provision for us. Mm-hmm. Yeshua takes those who are blind and lame. They should not be in the temple. They're forbidden. Of course, the money changers are forbidden as well. He drives them out. But then he heals those. Now they're, for, now they're permitted <laughs> to be there. To me, it's just like it's the perfect example of the temple offerings them, or the tabernacle offerings themselves. We shouldn't even be able to be there. And God provided a way mm-hmm. for us to interact with him. And that's just profound. Of course, I, bet you, I guarantee you these people that were blind, they didn't, they, didn't even, they didn't even care if they were in the temple. I mean, obviously, nobody's saying anything to me, but I have an opportunity to be healed if I go here. That's right. Okay. right. I wish that we all had that same perspective Amen. on the temple and being in the presence of Messiah, whether it's, whether it's physically or 
in a in a more ethereal sense that that we have an opportunity to be healed, to be where we're not supposed to be able to be mm-hmm. because of it. Mm-hmm. And even after he healed them, according to the very Torah that would not allow them to be there, they would then need to make sacrifice Absolutely. as thanksgiving for having been healed. It's amazing. That's good. One of the things here on this uh, this portion talking about offerings, it, it reminds me actually of Messiah Yeshua again. Um, there's an interesting little midrash that talks about um, uh, verse seven. This is the law of the meal offering, and then it proceeds to actually talk um, about how the sons of Aaron should, should bring it and whatnot. Um, but then in verse twelve, it says Adonai spoke to Moses saying, "This is the offering of Aaron his sons, which each shall offer to Adonai in the days inaugurated, a tenth ephah of fine flour." And the sages point out. This is interesting that the first offering listed here for the, for the, the Kohanim, for the high priest, this is like top shelf. You know, there's the king, there's the high priest, and then there's everybody else, basically, in, in Israel's hierarchy, right? So, um, that the first offering listed here is the grain offering. And they point out that the grain offering is the offering of the poor man. That is exactly the type of offering that the, the lowest of the low are able to give. That's the best they can do, and God accepts that. So, oddly enough, God ties that to the high priest. And so the, the, the commentators look at this and they say, well, what we learn from this is that God's goal in doing that was twofold. Number one, he wants the low man, the poor man, to recognize that his offering is legitimate. Even the high priest offers a great offering. His offering is not just a, well, okay, fine. You have to offer something, offer some great. It was a legitimate offering that God accepted and God approved of. Second, it was also intended to keep the high priest humble, to realize that no matter how great he was compared to the rest of the people, he was still one of the people. And he was not any better as the high priest than the poorest of the poor guy, technically. God had, God had given him blessings, but himself, he should keep himself at that level. And it reminded me so much of, of Yeshua on so many levels, because humility is a huge thing to him. He talks about like you know not elevating yourself at, you know when you come to a party and not taking the seat at the head of the table, sitting at the bottom, getting elevated up. Which by the way is actually a tradition also passed on by the sages. Um, he also talks about and this reminds me so much of this of this concept here. He says that like when you give a gift to the least of my brethren, you give it to me. Well, who is Messiah? Messiah is the, is the high priest. So who is, he's kind of correlating the least of the brethren and and the Messiah, the top shelf character. Well, this correlation has already been given in Scripture. God has already said there is a parallel, a link between the lowest of the low in my people and the top of the top in my people. They are connected inherently. Messiah emphasizes that himself. He says that he is connected. The sages get this as well. Messiah is oftentimes hanging out with the lepers, which he actually did, because they're, again, he's tying in Messiah as top shelf to the bottom of the community. And this humility that filtered through his life and that he then taught to us is exactly what God is also trying to give here. So it's a good reminder to those of us, especially, I mean, as we <coughs> dressed up for Purim, those of us who are maybe not quite in the 1%, top, definitely in the 5, to not be necessarily looking at the guy sitting on the street corner in dirty clothes thinking that I'm so much better than he is, because we're not. We just happen to have been blessed differently. Yes, sir. Oh, and then I got you after that. I think. Is that right? Okay. On, the, on the issue of the grain offering, it is interesting, and it is tied to the poor people. Um, if you're a poor person and you're thinking about sin and wanting the covering, you might think that, oh no, I can't afford that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Whereas those of us who participate in fasts know that the blessings before fasts 
actually dedicate the lack of eating of bread and water as a giving of our blood. <laughs> so what we recognize is all of the, it's easy to see an animal as a replacement for me in some way. It's not so easy to see grain <laughs> unless you participate in the fast. Then you know full well that it actually has the same relationship. There is a relationship between what you eat and the blood that you have within you. It's your life. Without eating, you will die. Right. And bread's actually the pinnacle, even though it's the poor man's food, it's the pinnacle of our sustenance. Right, and actually it's funny that you mentioned that because commentators on last week's portion note that the grain offering is considered to be top shelf by God because the poor man is the one who offers it. The poor man has so little, and that he would bring what little he has, just like the woman with the two mites, right? The little he has is, is, is an immense gift on his part. So I thought you and my dad again. Um, so with respect to Messiah and Messiah's, the metaphor of Messiah being Uh, you know, if, if the church would take time to study Leviticus, they would realize that when, when if, you, if you equate Yeshua to the Passover lamb, as it were, right, right. Which, which Paul even says, he right. is our Passover. It's a good right? parallel. So <clears throat> that is not a sin offering, that is a peace offering. Right. A, a Passover lamb is a peace offering. Like a peace offering because you eat it. Right. Not not a not a sin offering, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, although you do eat the, the priest eats sin right. offering. But uh, and, and that's I think important because uh, number one, again, what's the picture of the peace offering? It's a it's a it's a it's it's there to represent the fact that, that there is now this this peace this peace between God and uh, man as it were between God and the offer right so <clears throat> that that's a perfect picture of, of in one sense what Yeshua accomplished for us because he made it possible to have that reconciliation and have that peace right uh, so he is as Hebrew says in on one sense he is also a sin offering in that he you know his his blood atonement um, Takes, washes away permanently sin, cleanses the conscience, as uh, it says in other places. But he's, but as a Passover, if you're going to use that picture, that's a peace offering. One of the things that's interesting about a peace offering is you have to consume it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> which is interesting when you know when you think about what Yeshua said that was quite offensive, by the way, to. Uh, the time. He said, if you do not eat my body and drink my blood, right? That's what is that? I mean, he's saying, you know, he's, he's using he's using temple language right. to say, if you don't internalize me, right? Uh, and that was offensive to some people who didn't quite understand what he was what he was saying. But the point is, lots of people still don't understand what he's saying, right? Yeah, there's a wafer thing going on. But anyway, <laughs> but the, the point is, a peace offering. The, the Leviticus gives us some very specific details about how you handle a peace offering. And the, one of the most important things is you have to eat it, and if there's anything left over by the third day, you have to totally mm -hmm. burn it. Because mm -hmm. Why? Because you can't let the meat of the peace offering begin to um, decay or begin to turn rancid, because that would actually be 
uh, somewhat sacrilegious, right? Because you right. made this offering, you've offered this animal, it's now set apart, it's holy, mm-hmm. and then you're going to let it just right. rot, right? right? And so it would actually undo right. the, uh, you, when, you, when you offered it on day one and it was acceptable at that time, if you let it go rancid by day three, it actually retroactively no longer right. um, uh, uh, efficacious. It's the only offering. It's the only offering that actually you can undo the good that you did if you don't handle it appropriately. Right. You know, or bring it to life again. And, and and so you have to. It has to be um, properly handled within this three-day period, right? Which of course is a beautiful um, parallel to Messiah Yeshua because he. Was, he came out of the grave, you know, on the third day, right? Why? Because it's a, it's in, in one sense, it's a, it's a, it's tying, it's, it's connecting the dots to the picture of right. suffering. On the other hand, it's a fulfillment of the prophecy in, in Psalm 16, which said that you know, you not leave my soul in, in Sheol, nor did you suffer my servant to see decay. Right. Referring as a prophecy, referring to the Messiah. Right. Messiah's physical body could not begin to decay yeah, or it would it would overturn all the right. work that he potentially did when he died three days prior. Right, very good. And it's funny because yep, <laughs> that's that good point stuff. in commenting on the uh, third day thing, the scriptures go even further. They say you can't even intend to yes. eat it on the third day. Right. Even if you don't, even if you decide on the third day, you know what? That was wrong. I'm not going to. If you just planned to do it, that's a problem. Which is interesting because, of course, Messiah shows up on the scene. He starts talking about, you know, if you, if you, if you look at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you have anger in your heart towards your, your brother, you've committed murder. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, new commandments given by Messiah. It's like the idea that intent is connected to action was always there. The difference is that Messiah is simply un- highlighting it. He's underscoring it. He's drawing those connections that may be more implied, making them more explicit, and saying, yes, you were right. Intent does matter. Now, action is the primary expression of intent, so we're going to primarily focus on action because as a community, you don't know intent. But God is saying that he does, and he's pointing out right here, in the midst of this incredibly physical act, I think it's really funny, you know, Christianity looks at this and says it's all physical. We've, and even to some degree, Judaism does too. We've done away with the sacrifices so that we can now do prayer. That's the new replacement for sacrifices. But the thing is, the act of doing the sacrifice is only part of the puzzle. Their intent in the midst of it, they talk about it. You read the, you read the Talmud about like the, the, tradition, like the, the restrictions, the mental restrictions on the priest as they're slaughtering the thing. They had to be thinking about it. They had to be doing it with the right intention. They had not planned to be eating it on the third day. I mean, this is all these little pieces all in the side of their head, basically, to make sure they're doing it the right way. And I think that underscores to us, talk, going back to what we're talking about at the beginning, what are we learning from this? Well, we learn from this that intent matters. Even if you end up doing the right thing, if you intended to do the wrong thing, that's not good. Does it nullify the right action? Well, in some cases, I guess the answer is yes. But not all the time, but more importantly, it does still matter. Okay, my dad, I'll come back here. Actually, what Greg said uh, made what I was going to say on the same. Oh, okay. So he has annulled the first comment and the latter comment. Yes, sir. Just to dovetail on what you're saying, you know, what's the what's the name of this portion? Zav. Command, right? Not Zavim. And it's it's the it's the imperative form of that verb. Mm-hmm. Which by the way, there's there's another this is the only name for a portion that's actually 
that's actually used twice in the name of a portion. If you recall, three, maybe four weeks ago or so, we read a portion in Shemot called Tetzave. Tetzave. It's the same. It's the same root, and that is translated. You will command them. In uh, that okay. case, it was to bring the oil, right, the, right. The, uh, uh, the pure olive oil. In this portion, it's Zah, command Aharon and his sons to do such and such. Well, command, com- to have a command, uh, to have a command, right, implies that somebody in authority has given the command. In, in, in the concept, in the, in the in the world of Torah, right, a command implies a king, because the king gives commands, and it's the job of the subjects to do, which is the Hebrew verb uh, asa, right, to, to do or to make, sometimes it's translated to make. So there's the whole idea of if there's a command, then there has to be a, there has to be a to-do. There ha- it's a natural, if the king has given a command, the, the subjects have to do mm-hmm. and and they do without questioning not that they can't question but they receive the command from the king period right. right which is one of the reasons why the nation of Israel is distinct because at Sinai they said whatever he says we will do they didn't even know what he said yet mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so um, so to have a command implies a king that's giving a command, which implies there has to be action. So when Judaism, you know, gets accused of being overly focused on action, well, okay, guilty. You know, I mean, because if if it's not that the spiritual, obviously, I mean, the spiritual is obviously very important, but. Um, but you can't keep kosher in your heart. Right. Well, you either do it or you don't, right? Jacob says the same thing. You can't keep charity in your heart either. (laughs) A whole lot of people say they can't. Right. You you either do it or you don't. And by doing it, what what we're doing is we're bringing bringing God down to this, you know, mundane world. And we're declaring he's the king. We're declaring that he's the king by the obedience. Which is really the point, and that's I think the difference between a lot of the Christian approach, where we're not this world, you know, doesn't count, doesn't really count, right? And it's all about the next world. Well, no, I mean it's, I mean the next world obviously is important, but you're standing in the next world. It really depends on how you, how what you do <laughs> in this world, right? Right. Why is it that when a when a Jewish man dies? And we put him in the box, and, and we bury him with his talit. Before we nail the box shut, what do we do? We cut his seat seat off his talit. Why do we do that? Because if you're dead, you can't keep commandments, nor are you obligated to keep commandments. <laughs> good, good to know. Good. Wait, wait. That's a which test you why, cannot pass. That's right. Which is why you see David in the Psalms all the time saying, you know, if I die, who's going to do, do it? Yeah. Right, true. Because a dead person cannot keep, cannot bring godliness into the world in terms of and, and declare the kingship of the king in this world because they can't keep the commandments, which is also kind of ties into something that Shaul said, which totally gets misunderstood when he said 
I'm dead to the law, right? Mm -hmm. He's picking up on this concept. That's a totally different class, but anyway. So doing the physical things just to dovetail is incredibly important. It is incredibly important, and I think it's it's also cool because the physical things oftentimes were, especially in front of the offerings. I feel like a lot of the physical things are a physical expression of a spiritual concept. In other words, the ironically enough, sometimes look at it. It, it, it go. It's like a circle. It goes both ways. So the offerings were a picture of a spiritual thing. This direction. So you do the offerings if you're thinking about the spiritual thing or learn the spiritual lesson. They're also an expression of a spiritual thing. So you can do something about something you're already thinking or feeling or imagining or, or wanting to do. So if you think about it, one of the things I think is incredibly awesome is you read through the law of the guilt offering, the law of the sin offering, over and over and over again. It says it is most holy, it's most holy, it's most holy. And the parallels between the sin offering and the guilt offering to the burnt offering are replete over and over and over again. They're not the same thing. But what's great about this is what happens when you do something. Because the sin offering and guilt offering, as we pointed out before, was not offered every time you accidentally did something wrong. There were certain things you had to offer an offering for, and there were other times where you might offer an offering as sort of a just-in-case when you got to the, the temple. But otherwise, you I mean, people from Galilee weren't tramping out to Jerusalem every weekend to go offer an offering for that week's sins. That's not how it worked. However, yeah, or every day. Um, however, what is it, what do you do feel when you do something, especially this thing really bad, because that's really what a lot of these were. Guilty. feel awful, and you want to do something about it. I mean, it's like, and you, and you don't know what to do, because I think if, if, if you think really hard about it, you realize you can't fix it. There's nothing you can do to make up for what you just did wrong. That has been written, it has been, it has been inscribed, and it's over, and you can't change it. So we want to do something about it. We need to do something. One of the things my dad pointed out is you, the other feeling that most people have when they do something really bad is I want to run away from God as far as fast as I possibly can because they recognize that like I shouldn't be here. I don't really have this the relationship with God is a little shaky right now. I don't feel how close to him. I'm afraid he's mad at me. Whatever. You see that with Adam and Eve. So what do the offerings, the sin offering and the guilt offering do? Number one, they give, they give you an opportunity to do something. You did mess up. Here is how. You cannot fix it, but here is what you can do next. Here is that next step. Get out of bed, put your feet in your shoes. Here is the thing you do next. It's like, I mean, the, 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 this is a pop culture reference. There's a song from uh, the band Switchfoot that talks about that whole idea. It's like, this is your life. What are you going to do about it? It's like, you made the mistake, but you can't just be depressed and sad. If you stay there, then you just keep making more mistakes. you got to move. This gives you where to move. The second thing it does is it gets you in God's presence. Like, in, like as quickly as you, I mean, depending on the, on the situation, as quickly as possible. It's like, you took care of the thing you stole, you returned it to the person you stole it from, now come offer an offering. It's almost like God saying, come back in, let me re-emphasize, everything is okay. You're still my child, I still want a relationship with you. Now that you've done the mitzvot that I said beforehand, I am now welcoming you back into that intimacy that you had before. Just because you messed up does not mean the relationship between us is over. Or that it's so set so far back it's going to take you decades to get back here again. That now I want you. I want you right now. And that imagery, that imagery, the parallels between the burnt offerings and the sin offerings and the guilt offerings, I think are on purpose. There are offerings we don't eat because they're not really, you know, they're not intended to be used for that. There are also offerings that we intentionally make sad, like the offering that the, uh, the woman brings who's, who's suspected of adultery. There are things you don't add the oil to and whatnot because you're kind of like diminishing the offering. But we don't diminish the sin offering because God's saying, this is still great. I still want you to be here with me. 
don't want you to feel like you're so far in second place or you know second class that you can't experience relationship with me. So the sin offering and the burn offering have these parallels, I think, on purpose to emphasize the relationship is still good, which I think is beautiful. So this is the, this is the, the flip side of this. So yeah, we're learning about Messiah Yeshua through the sin offering, but also we're getting a chance to express something that today has almost no expression. Right. How do you make up for it when you do something wrong? We have confession that helps, but there's di- it's difficult, I think, today. And this was so this was actually quite a gift. Yes, sir. It is difficult today, but the Midrash has said something so cool about teshuva, repentance, which is what we do nowadays without the temple system. And it says that if a person repents, it is regarded as if he has gone up to Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple and the <laughs> altar, and brought on it all of the offerings of the Torah. Amen. And of course, the, 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 the emphasis there is on how important teshuva is to Hashem. Right. Just like the offerings were super important to him, and they fix the relationship, they cleanse the temple. The Midrash goes on to say that each Jew should see himself as a temple, which harkens back to what Paul says. And it's like the teshuva is the cleansing of the temple. And so right. it's, that's, that's for us now, to recognize how important that is to Hashem. Yeah, and that's a good reminder. I mean, I think it's funny, if you read, if you read, if you read the um, Nachman, one of his biggest things throughout all of his teachings is not being down on yourself. He says there are times when you're doing well, that you should be a little down on yourself so you don't get too full of yourself. But he says at the times, it's like, if, ideally, we should always be cognizant of how great Hashem is and how pathetic we are. Right. But most of us are incapable of handling that without just being so depressed we stop doing anything. And he, so he actually emphasizes, remember all the great things that God does in your life. Remember the fact that you're, called, you're, you're chosen of, of Hashem. Remember the fact that, you know, even if, you're, if the only commandment you've ever done is you got circumcised, which wasn't even your intention, at least you did that. That's on your, that's on your good side going forward. The point is that, like, Nachman's idea was to emphasize this idea we're talking about and what the offerings thing you're getting to. Relationship with God can still be good. Just because you've messed up and done things wrong, don't, don't be trivial about those. I mean, I think offering an animal and killing it made it so they didn't feel any less trivial. But nonetheless, it doesn't mean the relationship is over. Yes, sir. So, a couple One is, I would, um, I would make a comment to what Greg said, and that is, Shuba was uh, expected. Repentance mm-hmm. is not; it's not something we do now and we didn't do then, because the the sacrifice that or the offering that was brought was not efficacious if there was not already True. genuine repentance, right? Right, the, the, the prophets get into. Right, the prophets kind of point, pull, pull that out. But, so, repentance has always been, and always will be, the only real, uh, the only real way to, um, to fully restore that relationship to God, which is why, by the way, there is no offering that you can bring for intentional sin. And I don't know about you, mm. You guys are all a lot more righteous than I am, but most of my sin, unfortunately, is not stuff that I accidentally did. Mm. So it's there is no offering. There's no need for me to run to the temple because then running to the temple is not gonna not gonna help. The only thing that helps intentional sin is I have to have genuine repentance. Period. End of statement. So um, so I think that's an important thing to remember that the sin offering and the Asham offering. Where sin offering is really a bad translation in English. It's really more a purification offering. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for example, a woman who has given birth to a child after she's waited 
the prescribed number of days, depending on whether she gave birth to a male or a female, the Torah requires her to bring a chatat offering, which you know most English translations say that's a sin offering. Well, why does she need to bring a sin offering? Since when was it a sin to bring new life into the world? Right. It's a mitzvah, right? It's not a sin offering. She has to be purified because she's been in a state of unclean, uncleanness, ritual uncleanness, because of the act of giving birth. Right. That's why she brings a sin offering, but it's not really, it's purification offering, really a better tr translation of that word. <clears throat> the Asham offering, the guilt offering, again, you bring that really when you think you may have done something wrong, but you're not sure, but right. you want to be saved. Or you actually do something like, you know, you did something, at the time you did it, you didn't know that you were making, uh, you were erring, right. and then it becomes, you become right. aware after the fact that you did something. Oops. Now you know, and now you go, you would go take that particular offering and present it. But for intentional sin, you know, but there's no offering. The only, the only offering that you can bring is genuine repentance and a contrite heart. Right. Um, so, and then with respect to the idea of, you know, you know, not being too down on yourself, and you know, you know, those types of things. I, I've always had a, I've always had this idea, and maybe one day I'll actually get the time to do something with it. But I've always had this idea of creating this blog site called FirstDay.com, which the idea behind the blog would be, today's the first day of the rest of your life. So what are you going to do? Right. It doesn't really matter what, what happened yesterday or the day before, two years ago or ten years ago, or you know who did you wrong when you were a child, whatever. Right? Today's right. first day. Right. So now what are you you know now what are you going to do? So and I think if we if we try to take that perspective, um, I think that can be healthy because it helps keep things mm -hmm. helps keeps keep things in perspective. Well, I think at some level that's almost what the offerings were intended to do. They gave something to do. I think that's one thing that, like, if, if you, I, I actually knew someone who got out of, like, a clinical level depression kind of thing. And one of the things that he said basically saved his life, or saved him from being a couch potato for the rest of his life, is that he uh, started running. He started running uh, every day because he had to do something. He had to get out of bed, get out of the house, Put on clothes, and well, hopefully put on clothes before getting out of the house, and then go run. And he had to do an activity he didn't want to, but he needed to do something because as long as he didn't do something, he just got feeling, kept feeling worse and worse. Because surprise, when you don't do stuff, you look at yourself, you go, "I'm not doing anything with my life." So, with the point of these offerings, I think part of the idea is kind of what you're getting at is first day concept that like you here's something to do. You messed up. You probably are clueless right now on what it is that you can do to fix this. You probably feel awful. Here's what you do. Step one, bring this offering. Or step one, return what you stole and then bring the offering. The point is, here's a list of things to do. And that's really helpful. And I think for us as well, when you do something really badly, and I understand the intentional sin, um, maybe we should probably practice that ourselves. Let's find something to do. Find a mitzvah to, to fill that gap. Rather than like run and hide and be like, oh, I'm not... Uh, it's, 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 
it was a bad day, I got mad at work, whatever, it's like, well, I'm definitely not, you know, saying we're proud of his own tonight because I really feel like God does not appreciate me. Mm -hmm. Then really, maybe we should do the opposite. Be like, okay, let's find that mitzvah. Let's do that extra mm -hmm. thing so we can uh, get on with the rest of what we're doing. My dad, did you go? This uh, kind of goes to what, what Greg was talking about. You know, it was, the, it was right after the temple was destroyed that we had to repent both. We had the same great repentance. And we understand the significance of repentance. Is without question, it's like the pinnacle. The problem is that it's like in the, in the notion of, of, of quantum physics, you know, an intent or possibility does not equate to, doesn't equate, doesn't give us the same satisfaction in an actual event. We need to collapse the wave. Thinking about being Alan Shepard in the first Mercury capsule is wonderful. I can read about it and think how great it is. But wow, to be that guy, man, that'd be amazing. So I mean, it's it's like we 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 do the best we can. Repentance is all we have, and it's the best. It's the pinnacle. But to experience repentance, we need the temple. Right. Yeah. There's there's definitely. Well, that's actually one of the things that I was thinking about in the book of Jeremiah. I was feeling the sense that. What this seems to be teaching us is that we're not there yet. You know, you look at it and you think to yourself, why would God not allow us to keep a mitzvah? I mean, these are really good mitzvot. Why are we not being permitted to do so? Because Messiah's not here. We didn't rebuild the temple. What's going on? And I think to some level, it's like that, that year between Exodus and Leviticus. It's like, we're not there yet. We're not ready for that. Which, if you think about it in that way, I hope that recalibrates your thinking about offerings. As noble and as good as all of the spiritualism that we have we have brought into our faith over the last couple hundred years, that was only part of the process to get back to where they were 3,000, 3,500 years ago to be worthy of keeping these commandments. Yes, Judah. That's not exactly what I was going to say. It's what you said, that uh, oftentimes you understand what you do is you go, oh, well, I uh, sin, I can't get back, but then you realize, oh wait, I should uh, I should read my Bible, I should pray, I should do this, I should get closer to God. That's one thing I find fantastic about repentance is that sometimes God can do something really good out of something like that, like a sin, bring you back, bring you closer. Maybe you're drifting lately, maybe you didn't read your Bible that morning. That's something I found find fantastic that repentance can sometimes bring you closer to God. Mm -hmm. Yes, it definitely can. Don't don't sin so that grace may increase, but it does when you do. It's a good opportunity. Absolutely. Um, one of the things as we get to this passage they, they talk a lot about the different things the priest should do with the offerings and they kind of walk through all the, the background of what that's going to look like and then we finally get in chapter 8 they reintroduce the narrative so up until up 1 through 7 of Leviticus was all commandments it's vote um, summary basically we get into chapter 8 and we're getting back to the story the story is the, ta the tabernacle is here now how do we get in and so one of the first things that Hashem does, he speaks to Moses, talking about Aaron. Here's what we're going to do with Aaron. And if you read through this passage, I hope that you felt the sense, the passage of time in this story. Because when I first read this, and actually really every year until this year I've read this, I've always thought of like, you know, Moses is moving as fast as he possibly can, and we're going to cut this guy, throw this in the fire, we're going to sprinkle this person, and then we're going to dump some water over here, we're going to like, here, put this on, and then we're going to do this, we're gonna, it's like, it's all just this constant, like, moving quickly, as though somehow we're like, uh, you know, cleaning a house or something, or maybe cooking dinner, it's like, move as fast as we can, so we can get, we can get to the main event, right, but actuality, if you read through this portion, I get the impression this took an incredibly long time, it's unbelievably intentional, 
He walks through. Look at the, I mean, look at the sacrifices as they're describing this stuff. Look at the, he puts this garment on. Then he puts this garment on. Then he puts that garment on. Oh, and then we do that to the sons. And then we're going we're gonna to offer this offering. We don't just, you know, kill the animal and throw it on the fire. You kill the animal, and then you, you butcher it, and you take it apart, and it's very, very intentional. And in fact, actually, it's funny because, of course, the animal rights people freak out about things like this. Like, oh, my goodness, especially the one that we didn't even eat. It's like we're just wasting this animal's life, you know. But the irony is I feel like this, this portion is emphasizing the significance of what's being done. They don't tell you, kill the goat, throw it on the fire, move on. They, they, God walks through, literally, I mean, it's like a biology lesson. If you didn't know that there were lobes of fat by the kidneys, you do now. But, like, there's just all of this stuff that's, like, I mean, just walk them through exactly how it was going to happen. One of the things, when we watch crime TV shows, one of the things they always point out is, like, when there's a murder, if, if, the, if the person took their time, if, they, if when they killed somebody, it wasn't just an act of accidental or, or rage or whatever, but it, it was very intentional, then it really emphasizes sort of the disturbing nature of the crime. You know, obviously this person meant to kill the person they were killing. That's worse than accidental or, or, or lost control, whatever. Whereas in this case, I feel like it emphasizes it in the other direction. So Moses is very intentional. He cuts up this animal very on purpose. He puts it on the fire in the right order. He, wash, he washes some of the animal before you burn it up. I mean, it's, it, I mean, the best part to me was the sin offering, kills the whole thing, puts the pieces on the altar, and then it says he takes the rest of it outside the camp to a clean place. Where's the tabernacle? It's in the middle of the camp. He's got to walk all the way out of the camp, burn the stuff, and walk all the way back in. I mean, if you thought that I was scrambling looking for material while he was going to get the recorder, I mean, I'm just imagining whatever all the people of Israel are doing there. Okay, Moses is going to be back. Don't build a calf, anybody, but he, he will return this time. But, I mean, they're just... But my point is that it was slow. It was on purpose. Yeah. It was intentional. Yeah. It was like God said, this is a big deal. I don't want you rushing through this. I want you to do it each step on purpose with intent in mind. I want you to take your time. I want you to savor the moment. In some ways, it's sort of like the traditions that are applied to a wedding ceremony. Do you need all of those traditions? Not necessarily. I mean, according to the basic bare bones, it's like they did the blessing, the seven blessings, and you're married. Yeah, yeah. We're good. Ready to go. You can do the whole thing in five minutes. But we don't do that. We have, you know, seven circles, or we have, you know, all the rings and all the different pieces because the ceremony is important. Now, it's not because it's needed, but it's because it emphasizes how serious this is and how good this is and how important this is. And that's exactly what's happening here. In that, that intention... Right, is is carried over into the liturgical prayers because the liturgical prayers are now, in essence, um, uh, a standing in temporarily mm -hmm. for the actual uh, sacrifices. Right. And so, you know, the very pious really try to uh, really tr they really take their common eye and prayer very serious, and, and especially. You look at some of the, uh, the uh, you know, particularly some of the Kabbalistic, you know, groups with Judaism. I mean, they might it might take them forty five minutes to pray, you know, a, you know, a page of out of the Siddur because they are, you know, they they take this concept of intent and really thinking about what they're saying and. And, you know all of that, so mm -hmm. uh, so there is something to that mm -hmm. in terms of how it applies to us in our prayer life. In terms of not just you know being careful to guard that we're not just 
of reading the prayers going through and the just kind of going through it because it's easy to fall into that, particularly once it becomes pretty familiar to you. Right. But it's it's training ourselves to focus and have that intent and really think about what is it we're reading and and what is it that what is it that I'm actually praying and you know why am I praying it you know I, and that's important it's important to keep that frame of, of thought which is actually why in the Jewish traditional liturgical setup they don't immediately start with Shema and Shemoni Ezra those are the most important you say those at the end because you want to have all the build up where you can be focusing and hopefully getting in the right spirit of mind and trying to get in the zone, so to speak, before you get to those really important prayers so that you don't miss them or ignore them. Yeah, absolutely. So as we as we go through um, all these pieces of steps up here, pieces, <laughs> no pun intended, um, uh, steps here with the offerings, one of the things I thought was interesting is that uh, Moses in- includes the uh, Aaron and his sons in the, in the process. He, he cuts up all the, the, the things, takes the bread, and it says that... Um, the inauguration altar, uh, I believe, and he actually puts it in their hands. So he actually, it's not just that, because Moses, if you watch this, Moses is playing a weird role here. Moses is not the high priest, but Moses does almost all of the offerings because technically we have no high priest yet. Like, Aaron can't do it because he's not, this is his inauguration. So Moses is specifically entrusted by God, so to speak, to do this, like, first step and then, I mean, there's traditions about what Moses did or didn't do afterwards, but the point is that after this, we don't really see him. And certainly in systematic setup, he's not included moving forward in the offerings. But he does this one. But what I thought was cool is you'd think, because it's Moses' job, so to speak, that like to me, it's like, okay, he's gotta, he wants to make sure everything's done properly, so he's doing it all. What I think is neat is it's like he takes this brief, I mean, this is, this is a command by God, so it's not like he made it up, but this is a little brief respite in the middle of the whole thing, he puts all the stuff in their arms and, and physically engages them. Which is, if you've, ever, if you've ever trained somebody to do a task, one of the best things you can do is put their hands on the task. Because uh, as you're teaching them, as you're, even if you're doing it by example, they, only, they can only remember so much, especially if they weren't paying very good attention. But even if they were paying good attention, it's difficult to remember exactly how it all went. So they give them a tactile memory, it, it reinforces the learning experience. So in the middle of this, Moses puts this on them and waves them as a wave offering. The tradition holds that they actually pick Aaron up, shake him around a little bit. Um, but no, that's actually that's kind of cool because he's actually the offering. I mean, that's literally bring yourself as living sacrifices. It's actually happening here. But in doing the putting it on their arms, he's actually he is again tying in. He's reinforcing this learning experience because even though he's received all these commandments, this is the first time someone's doing this the way that God had laid out. So Aaron's going to have to be doing this. He's better data right. So I think it's cool the way that he kind of incorporates that extra learning element. Yes, sir. I think this this role that Moshe plays here is also um, I think is instructive for us with respect to Messiah because while Moshe is a Levite, you know, we, and we've talked a lot about this in the past, right? Moshe is um, the quintessential, you know type of Messiah, if you will. In fact, Hazal goes far as to say that he was Mashiach in that day, for all intents and purposes, right? And we see that in his role, because he's king, priest, and prophet. Mm -hmm. And in this particular passage, he's obviously operating as the the priest, even though he's about to inaugurate 
the Levitical priesthood with right. his brother Aaron. Different setup. And he hands he's gonna hand over this responsibility to the Levitical priests. And I think that's instructive as to what actually might happen at the end of days when when Messiah returns and we know Messiah is this higher order of, right. of priests. He's the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But he may inaugurate or re-inaugurate Okay. You know, uh, yeah. the the Levitical priesthood in the final temple in a similar fashion, perhaps. Where because and and that's what's interesting about that is, you know, Aaron Aaron could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Mm-hmm. Most Moshe, of the time. goes in, goes in and out all the time. <laughs> he's got a different level there. Right. Because because he's a picture of the of that higher order of priesthood. Uh, that I think parallels to you know, the picture of Messiah. So that's cool. That's, that's a good true. point. And it also helps explain some of David's activities. Also, <laughs> seem a little out of place, and you're like, wait, it's not Levitical. How is he doing that? Right. Um, at the very end of the portion, I don't know if you saw this sort of oddity. It's not an oddity. It seems like an oddity to me. Um, God encourages or commands Aaron and his sons to basically camp out and attend a meeting right, so um, seven days until this day when your days of inauguration are completed. This is verse 33. For you shall be inaugurated for a seven-day period. Um, and it's interesting. It says, At the entrance of the tent of meeting shall you dwell day and night for a seven-day period. You shall protect Hashem's charge that you will not die. For so I have commanded. Uh, and it's funny because in this portion, I think reading this, I thought about, like, what it reminds me of is um, a wedding week. You know, you get married, and what's the, what's the next thing that Judaism does? Judaism has you go out to other people's homes for a week uh, in the community to uh, present yourself, so to speak, but it's like the, part of the goal in this, to some degree, is to keep you in the like the wedding spirit throughout the whole first week, um, and uh, and so it takes some of the burden off of the new bride from having to dinner every night. Um, it also uh, allows the they actually one of the things you're supposed to do each night is to sing the the seven blessings, so you actually like reintroduce the wedding night uh, ceremony. Throughout each day of this of this week, and it, it, so it almost feels kind of like that. It's like there's this 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 inauguration. Here's the priesthood, and it's almost like don't go back to your normal lives yet. We need to soak this in. We need to like let's really appreciate this change in the relationship. We need to make a big deal about this. I want you right here with me for the next seven days. So I think this kind of goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. Don't look at this book as burdensome. Because from a human, like, physical perspective, for those of us who aren't so into these types of things, it does look burdensome. It's like, I guess there's seven days? Oh my, what if it rains? You know, I mean, what are we doing here? It's like, we, should we just get, get on with life? I mean, let's go on and do the next thing. But what God is saying is he's intentionally putting this break in. You know, don't start offering the rest of the offerings. Don't get on with normal life. I want you to stay right here, and we're going to just kind of, we're going we're gonna to adjust to this new reality. We're going to emphasize this and, and highlight how important it is. So instead of it being this burdensome thing, it really should be beautiful. I mean, that's really, I think, what, what God is getting at in, in the imagery here. Yes, sir. Well, I'm just going to add that's that tradition. You know, I think if you if you look at the ancient, you know, kind of wedding customs in Israel, it was there was it used to be that the wedding was a seven day affair, and this the tradition that we have of the bride and groom kind of going around the community for the next seven days is sort of the leftover trappings of mm-hmm. that ancient custom when the actual 
the whole celebration was a full week-long celebration. Right, so we get we get in the story of Jacob with Leah. It's like, fulfill her week, and then you right. can have Rachel, so there's this week-long, week-long deal. Um, boy, I'm sure that there are some fathers in the room that are glad we don't still pay for a week-long celebration. <laughs> um, uh, but no, I think, and the, I think this is cool. So the beginning of the verse, passage, very first verse, is the, is the name of the, of the power shot. It's Sav. Listen to the Hebrew of the very last verse. So what it says, Vias acharon ubenav et kol hadevarim asher tzava adonai v'yad Moshe. I think that's so cool. So at the very beginning of the portion, God says, command Aaron. And then here's the rest of the portion, right? How does it end? Aaron and his sons carried out all the matters that Hashem commanded through Moses. They did exactly what he told them to do. Yeah, right. They did. They did, they did exactly what Moses said. And you do. Right. Uh, so may, may our lives par- parallel that one for sure. Amen. Too close to that in prayer, sir. Sure. And that's exactly what Moses did in the previous book. He did exactly what Over and over again. Father, I pray that we would be as faithful to do exactly what you said to do. Give us your commandments, Father, and sanctify us through them. Help us to set the day apart and our lives apart, that we might be waiting and faithful when your Son returns. We pray these things for Shem Yeshua HaMashiach Amen. 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 Good job, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having us.